Hi, it's Maria here and welcome to episode 5 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. My guest today is Abdul Abdullah. He's a fourth time Archibald finalist and this year he has paintings hanging in both the Archibald and the Sulman prizes in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And I've posted photos of those works on the website talkingwithpainters.com. Abdul's art delivers a strong message. Issues of identity and the current political debate surrounding the Muslim community in Australia and around the world is front and foremost in his work. In our conversation, he talks about how he sees 9-11 impacted the Muslim community and why, in his view, that situation has actually worsened since then. We talk about the 2005 Cronulla riots and how he came about painting retired police officer Craig Campbell for the Archibald, and he also gives interesting insights into his painting process and photographic art. I met Abdul in his studio, so if you notice any background noise, um, it's probably coming from other artists' studios nearby, so just imagine a hive of creativity. I started by asking him where he grew up and his family background. I was born in Perth in 1986. I'm the youngest of three brothers, all called Abdul, who all went to art school. Uh, my mother is from Malaysia, and my father is a white Australian on his side were convict stock, so I'm a seventh generation Australian uh, with an ancestor who got here in 1815 after stealing two stamps and a watch chain. <laughs> God, how did you find? How did you find out about that? Oh, my brother's sorry, not my brother, my father's brother, uh, Uncle Stephen. He did all the research, so he, oh. he tracked it back with a family tree and found the original court records, and then we got all the information. God, like that. and like the boat and all that sort of thing, like which yeah. ship it was. It was and a all ship called it was in the Indef- Indefatigable, um, and his name was Charles Blinman. And so your mum's from Malaysia. Mum's from Malaysia, yeah. Right, and she's she migrated to Australia. Yep, my yeah, so father she... met my mum in Malaysia, like in nineteen seventy, when he was studying there. He was studying Malay at a university in Malaysia, and with her older brother, and um, so met through met through my sisters, my my uncle, and um, oh, okay. then my father got kicked out of the country during some student protests, and went through the it back into East. South, uh, went into South Asia and Eastern Europe, then back up through Russia and Japan, came back to Malaysia and married my mum. <laughs> and then they decided to come back to Australia? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. I don't know if my mum knew what she was in for. Why do you say that? <laughs> oh, she was, I think she was surprised by what Australia was like. It was like the tail end of the, of the white Australia policy. It was, um, it, was a, it was a different country to what it is now. And so when you were growing up, what sort of artistic influences would you have had in the home? I was pretty lucky in having really supportive, a really supportive family. Like my mum has always loved art, and more recently she now teaches art, uh, teaches pottery, mostly and painting yeah. at a local art centre in Perth. But also my two older brothers went to art school before me, and they're a fair bit older, so nine years and twelve years old, nine years older and twelve years older, and. Um, one of them still an artist, and the other one uh, runs art departments in WA Correctional Services. Oh, so you were surrounded by art as yeah, growing up. Totally, like yeah. I always had access to sort of textures and pencils and pens and paper. Like, and I was drawing from very little. Yeah, one of yes. my very first memories is of with my mum uh, helping me colouring in a colouring in competition for Beauty and the Beast. I remember because we used like this glitter glue that we did on Belle's <laughs> dress. Okay, so um. So you were you were 15 when 9/11 happened. Yep, 14 or 15. I'm trying to do the maths, but yeah, around yeah, that around yeah, that yeah, age. Yeah, yeah. 
Can you sort of remember differences in your life when you compare before and after? Definitely. I, well, it's, it, 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 I know things were not exactly as I saw it, but for me it felt like there was night and day between the before and the after, and, it was, and it's reflected in the way that my brother and I approach our identity, where I really see being a Muslim as a politicised identity. Like, I, I don't even look too much at the religious practices, like uh, it doesn't really take much of, of my day, that aspect of things, but uh, the perception of what I am uh, has formed who I am and how I go about things. My brother, on the other hand, who's nine years older than me, and was, he was a proper adult when 9-11 happened, he looks at the religion and religious experience with more nostalgia and the idea of familial obligation or a cultural difference, um, and less politically so. So he looks at the stories and he looks at the nuts and bolts of things while I kind of look at that external experience. And what's some examples like of, of what that external experience was like, say, immediately after? In those months after, um, um, immediately after that, like it was, well, it was immediately apparent that in the popular imagination, uh, Muslims in Australia had become the bad guys, and like uh, the first things that were happened was like the, the mosque and actually, and even the, the local Sikh temple in where I'm from, the people thinking that they were Muslim too got uh, were vandalised and graffitied. Um, my mother was assaulted. Uh, uh. That's one of the most. Formative things, I guess, happened at that time, and it was, and it was. What happened? Uh, she was in the city in Perth, and a group of men uh, tore her scarf off and chased her into a shop, mm. um, and saying things because, of, well, like expressing themselves that it was because she was a Muslim, and it's, and it was a very difficult thing for Muslim women, particularly at the time, because of the external signifiers like scarves and mm. um, that were. They were, I guess, easy targets for people who were that way inclined to mm. verbally abuse or to physically attack someone. Um, so it was, and that spread through the community pretty quick. That 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 feeling of being under siege, uh, or, or and like that sort of that secure. It's, it's funny because Australia broadly felt that the security was threatened by some like abstract terrorist threat, but like on the ground in Australia. Uh, like in the suburbs it was like Muslim families that were really feeling the brunt of sort of a violent response to what happened in 9-11. Yeah it must have been frightening. Yeah it was like I was like a a 14 15 year old boy so I was kind of like puffy it was uh, it's funny I to describe it as the all the kids in my area like what 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 we had in common was all sort of brown and poor so being the bad guy suited us, like in, in a sense. Not that we were the bad guys, but being told we were the bad guy long enough, it's much easier to be the tough kid on the street. I like I grew up boxing as well, so I boxed when I was a teen, when I was a, throughout being a teenager. Mm. Uh, and when you came up across, came up against racism and that sort of thing, it was much easier to return it with toughness than to sort of uh, address these things perhaps a little bit more rationally. You felt marginalised and you felt vilified, so it was much easier to align with other marginalised, vilified elements mm. in the community, which often meant like criminal elements. So, mm. as much, so mm. I often saw the friends that I was with either become uh, very isolated in their religious practices, so by that I mean becoming very, very conservative, or to the other extreme where they would just become like little criminals. Like that was sort mm. of the basic... The, the basic paths that they would take like if you couldn't take the middle path if that wasn't open to you or you weren't welcome there yeah you would find another one okay can you tell me a bit more about the boxing how did you get into that oh my brother boxed before me and my um 
my brother who's an artist now, Abdul Rahman, he won the state title in like 1994 as a junior at 60 kilograms. My brother-in-law was a fighter. Like my brother-in-law, who's my sister's husband, uh, he fought in the Oceania Games and stuff like that. And so it was you... part of the family business. And my sister now yeah. owns a boxing gym. Yeah, and what did you learn from that, like from boxing? What did you take from it? I guess you take away certainly... Certainly, it was an outlet, especially from a frustrated young man. Like you go there, and you'd, you'd, it's very difficult to be angry after a hard training session. But also, it gives you a certain amount of fearlessness after fighting for a while, uh, where there's comparatively there's nothing scarier for me than walking from the change room to a boxing ring like that. That that walk, that short walk, however long it is, that thirty second walk from the change room through the crowd and stepping into the ring made me feel so nauseous and terrified every time, no matter how many times I did it. Um, that now anything that sort of happens pales in in comparison, like it's all kind of insignificant. So it's, I, I guess a lot of people I've, I've found get very nervous with public speaking and well, that doesn't really bother me so much anymore because mm. it's not as scary as going into a fight you're not going to get beaten up <laughs> no that's one of the things with boxing like win or lose you're going to like you're still going to cop it a bit but also the, what, the, what happens in, the, in often the hardest things that to do with boxing happen in the gym away from away from the actual competition so it'll be like inspiring with bigger guys or something like that or your coach just blasting you like those sort of things that other people didn't see they sort of they're the most they've got the most influence on the person that you become I think so you were in the gifted and talented uh, education program in high school yeah how was that different to the I mean or what what did they provide well my school uh, specialised in art and tennis and what was great about that is that whoever the person that took the class wasn't a teacher necessarily but it was an artist in different fields so you can do painting so I did painting with an artist called Tori Benz who went on to be my tutor in university so mm-hmm. it was given early access to these people who would meet later on in life as well so um, it was it, it, and real practical professional experience from people who are in the industry and that that was really really helpful for me although the painting that i was doing then is not at all like the painting i'm doing now all right what was that what was that painting that you were doing the painting i was doing then was mostly sort of influenced a lot by graffiti and uh Mm. comics and that sort of thing it was like a a lot more illustration as opposed to Mm. the, the type of painting i'm doing now I think a lot of teenage boys do are attracted to that as yeah, well, definitely. aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I can see the attraction. I love um, cartooning and comics. It's just there's something about it that's really um, appealing, isn't it? Oh, totally. And I grew up in, with my brothers being so much older. My oldest brother collected graphic novels and that sort of thing. So yeah. that was I was always surrounded by. In fact, I've inherited a bunch of his uh, heavy metal magazines that he's got down there, which are, I oh, guess were yeah. an early influence. There's, there's not a lot of time between when you finished high school and when you started doing really amazing realist sort of painting. Uh, when did you start doing that sort of portraiture? Um, when I finished high school, I didn't think I was ever, ever going to be an artist and I kind of stopped doing anything for a while. So I took some time off from everything and just worked a job uh, straight out of high school so I didn't go to uni for a bit. And I eventually got to uni and I studied journalism for two years. But in second year, at the end of second year, or my last semester of second year in journalism, I picked up an elective in art, um, just as a, something to fill a gap, really, and uh, fell, fell way back in love with it, and switched courses in the following year, and took, started university, I think, started art school, sorry, maybe three or four years after I finished high school.
you're, if I'm right, you're only 30, and yep. this is the fourth time you've been chosen as a finalist in the Archibald, which yep, I find right. absolutely amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well done. Um, this year, your portrait titled The Cost of Retired Police Officer Craig Campbell was chosen. Uh, can you tell me why you chose to paint Craig Campbell for this year's Archibald? I hadn't intended on painting. I didn't want to enter this year because I'd, I'd entered the last I'm five years before this and I didn't get in with a painting and Tracy Moffat last year and I thought oh, I can't get in with a painting and Tracy Moffat like I don't think I can get in with anyone so I thought I was just going to give it a bit of a rest for a couple of years and then maybe try again a little bit older but um, uh, then I read about Craig Campbell in the, I think it was the Sydney Morning Herald they did a story about him just after the 10 year reunion of the Cronulla Rock not 10 year well what they tried to do a reunion but a 10 year anniversary of the Cronulla Rights um, and what has happened to him since and how his bravery award had been withheld and how he'd lost his house and his... Oh, like, his... we probably should backtrack exactly what he... Oh, remember right, yeah, what yeah. he did, what Absolutely. he did. Uh, yeah. 2000, uh, in 2005, there was a Cronulla riots in Cronulla where uh, essentially 5,000 people had a violent protest. Well, protest is a strong word. It was a riot, was a, a riot uh, against uh, Lebanese people or Lebanese people that they said were uh, being violent on the beach, but it's sort of... It's, it, it was either way I see it, like the what pe- the signs people were holding were like uh, uh, ethnic cleansing, ethnic mm. cleansing squad. What was going home? We grew here. You flew here, and then it's mm. and it was very much a it was a it was a racist right. It was a, a race right, uh, and anyone who looked like they weren't Australian was attacked on the beach. It was uh, very ugly. It was yeah, really really horrible. And and Craig was on duty that day, and he saved the lives. Of, well, I think he saved the lives of these two guys that were on the train. These two, one guy was actually Russian, and the other guy was Lebanese. And they, but they were both dark complexion, and they arrived on the train to, uh, and the crowd met them and sort of came on the train and started bashing them. And Craig at the time was a 130 kilo police officer, and sort of he rushed in and um, he cleared mm-hmm. the train of about 20 or 30 young men who were like laying into these two poor guys who mm. were like undoubtedly had nothing to do with any of the altercations that apparently happened at the beach in mm. the previous weeks there were two innocent people that were chosen because of essentially the colour of their skin or their ethnic identity um, and there was a, I've had a bit of criticism recently like online where people have said have accused me of like changing the issue to say that it's about Islam and it was not while it wasn't that Cronulla riots wasn't strictly about Islam I think that the the same people that were pushing for it are the same people that are so adamantly opposed to Islam now and also some of the signs that people were holding were specifically targeted towards Muslims at the time as well which people sort of gloss over but it was all it was all very much involved in the same uh, horrible vitriol Mm. shocking I remember the incident with um, Craig Campbell it, it must have been very heartwarming for, for you to see something like that. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, seeing Craig uh, defend those two guys, uh, do something right when everyone else was doing so wrong uh, was really sort of heartwarming. And, like, and talking to him now, it's like he acknowledges what he did was something sort of uh, above and beyond. He did an extraordinary thing, but as he describes it, he just was saw two people in trouble and mm. wanted to help them, and that, and that was yeah really, so that was heartwarming to see and reassuring in a way. Yeah, I suppose particularly in the midst of all of all of that um, anger that seemed to be directed. Absolutely, towards you. yeah. Because we see ourselves reflected on like in in every news story, uh, every every story that we see, we sort of relate to particular characters in that story or particular elements in that narrative, and there's like 
I, I don't relate to the guys that were riding like I'm the two boys on the train that got mm. beaten up like it was like and and to think that to, to bring it back to my own egocentricity it was uh, like it was the fact that Craig if it was me there or it was anyone else like he would have done the same thing and like, yeah. I appreciate that and so Craig has um, sort of fallen on hard times since then and that was what was written in the Sydney Morning Herald yeah absolutely hearing about what had happened to him since uh, that where he was living in a caravan now in Wollongong, his house was gone, his marriage is gone, uh, his, his bravery award had been denied him and he suffered really bad uh, PTSD, not just from Cronulla, like Cronulla was a big contributing factor, but from a career of trauma, essentially, mm. like, the, like I guess pretty eye-opening uh, spending this much time, one-on-one time with a police officer and the things that he sees, and, and essentially it's like every day he would meet someone and it was the worst day of their life. And how did he respond to your portrait? He didn't come to the opening because big crowds sort of affect him quite badly. Like he yeah. can't really, he doesn't, he can't be in big big crowds. Um, mm. He will get really anxious, or it'll start to bring some things up for him. So he went on the quietest part of the day, and uh, he ended up spending. We spent about an hour in the space, and he, he was good. He was good. He answered all the questions because people recognised him there. So they oh, were, people were lining up to ask him stuff. Was, uh, so that was really fun. Well, that must have been good for him, actually. I think so. Yeah. I think he really enjoyed that. Experience. Yeah. Yeah. And um, is there any reason you chose a circular format? I'll just it, It's 180 centimetres in diameter yeah, yeah. and it's circular. Yeah. Um, is there a particular reason you chose that? It, it was um, not a... There's not really a theoretical reason why I chose that. Uh, there is and there isn't. Like, I, I like how it looks like a coin or it looks like a medal, like, and his medal has been gone, although it doesn't look like the medal that he would get if he won the Bravery Award, but... it. Broadly speaking, it could be a medal like that. That yeah, sort of yeah, format, yeah. but also aesthetically, I'd 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 been spending I've, this year. I spent a lot of time in Indonesia, uh, working in Jakarta specifically, and hanging out with a lot of artists there. And there's an artist called Hahan who's I'm a big big fan of, and he was working on these massive circles uh, for the Manila Art Fair, and I just really liked how they looked. So when I got back, before really knowing what I was going to paint on it, uh, I, I got. Um, a circle made. And um, the resin, can you just describe what that is and how you apply it? The, the resin is a two-part epoxy resin, which is uh, similar to the stuff they use on surfboards. So it's just the best quality stuff that I can get. It's an industrial process uh, where you where you mix the two together. It's super poisonous while you're <laughs> mixing it, so you have to wear a mask and that sort of thing. And then pour it on a horizontal surface and then you comb it out. Uh, so it covers the whole thing and it will self-settle over 24 hours as long as you keep the dust off it. Yeah, right. And it creates like a glass-like effect, doesn't it? Yeah, so I think it's the... When they talk about it, it's one layer of this resin is like 50 layers of varnish. It's a very flat, glassy effect over the whole thing. So when you start off with a portrait, do you start with sketches or drawings? It depends, like... um, if, it depends on timing. Like, if I've got the time, I will start with drawings and try and get to know the the source material as much as I can. Um, that sounds quite scientific, like a very, <laughs> very robotic way of doing it, source material. But the person, generally, if I'm painting a person, yeah. if I can draw them as much as I can, I find that I have a better result with my final outcome. Um, yeah. And the way that I describe it when I'm doing workshops is that the... the the more practices you go, when you get to the last one, the less surprises you'll come across. So the more times you do a nose or the more times you do an eye, you kind of know how the bits and pieces fit together. And when you're working at it, you 
I'm like, oh, look at that bit I didn't notice before. So, like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's finding all those bits that you that we otherwise overlook. And it's funny, the more you look at something, the more bits that you see that you've looked, that you just haven't seen. I before. know, it's really I know. Weird. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, so, obviously, a likeness is quite important for you to get the likeness because. Yes and no. Like, it, well, if, it, if it's of a specific person, absolutely, like, especially with the Archibald and that sort of thing. Like, yeah. and when I, I don't do commissions anymore, but when I used to do commissions, uh, they had to look like the person. Yeah. Um, but, like, for example, these works that I'm doing now, the soldiers in particular are anonymous figures, so they don't have to look exactly like the person that I've, I've painted. It doesn't matter who yeah. they are. But I guess it's my own my own desire to make it look as much as, as them like them. So, but yeah. but I'm, I'm not not too precious about. It. And I noticed that you use a limited palette. It's mainly sort of reds and blues. And I noticed that in those in the two works in the Archibald and Sulman. Is that your is that you're drawn to those colours? I am. So I'll use a very very limited palette to start off with. Like my basic palette is cadmium red, cadmium yellow, cobalt blue, uh, spectrum red, deep white, and I'll mix a black uh, out of using raw umber and ultramarine. Oh yeah. So it's a it's a that's the basics. Um, but then I'll I'll like. Is it so you won't use a black a black from the tube. No, I've, I've got black from the tube. Like I've got a full range of colours available to me, and I might add them maybe like um if i want to shift colors around if i can't get the color that i want with those particular colors i'll get the color that i need or add the color to a tint to get it there but that's my that's the basis of my palette so you're also finalist in the sermon with your painting everything is fine it's of a military figure in quite dark tones and it's got that resin um, surface and then on top of that like a graffiti type you could call it a smiley face but a sort of an ominous sort of smiley face yeah. uh, can you tell me a bit about that painting and how it came about well what I like to do is is use potentially conflicting signifiers or, or contradicting signifiers so in this case it's a it's a figure of uh, a man who's in the army and in this specific case of the man who's in the American army um, and the spray paint on the top and I like how when you look at the image you the first thing you'll see is the smiley face before focusing in on the um, on the subject that's beneath it the darker subject that's beneath it um, and I've used these figures who are from the, the the army or the Australian army or the Australian federal police as, who are figures of authority or figures of, of power in the community and in society um, and who people often look to as for security, and that's their role primarily, but how they can off also be looked at as, as, as a threat. And I was looking specifically at our Australian intervention in Afghanistan and Iraq, like the illegal invasion of Iraq and that sort of thing, and all, all the things that have happened since then and how these have disproportionately affected uh, Muslim communities overseas and in Australia, uh, as well as the, the majority of, well, also Muslims trying to come to the country from these from these war zones uh, by Bodhi as refugees and how we've treated them and how it's all sort of disproportionately affected Muslims in in, um, in Australia and how these figures of authority and security are seen as a threat to mm. those people who have genuine grievances with these figures of authority and looking particularly at things like the raids that happened last year, or the terror raids, where the eight hundred police, eight hundred federal police, raided I think two hundred homes in Sydney and Brisbane, and I think it ended up with one one arrest. And that person should have been arrested, but it was like every one of those families that got 
rated uh, at every neighbour, they've all been affected in a negative way. Okay, so you don't just paint, you also um, you create photographs, video and installations. Yep. And in fact, you won the Blake Prize for Human Justice in 2011? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for your work with them and us, which was a very powerful photograph of you and your brother. What inspires you to paint as opposed to photograph a work? Recently, what I'm trying to do is bring those two elements of my practice together a bit more. Like, they've always had the same conceptual thrust, but photographs have had an immediacy that painting doesn't have. Like, there's something about photography that... It comes with, well, uh, like, I don't think I'm the first person to call it this, but, like, a, a, a term that I sort of think I came up with is this burden of evidence where you look at a photograph and you assume, even though it can be mucked with with Photoshop as much as anything else, uh, you just assume that it's something that really happened. Like, it's a window into a reality that existed. It's evidence of something real, while a, a painting is entirely fantasy, even though they can be as real or as mm. false or as each other. So I've used phot- photography to to have a real sort of immediate effect when I'm talking about political things and paintings up until sort of very recently have been uh, a, a way to look at the look, look at the same subjects but in a more abstract way. And do the ideas uh, come often out of the uh, the media or yeah, what's happening at the, the moment? News. That's the primary source of my motivation I guess but also life experience and the experience of other people and, and living in a, a country that has a particular political environment that we have at the moment mm. we've got four one nation senators like a few years ago I, I was taking some workshops with some 17 uh, year olds we prepared and I was talking about Pauline Hanson and they, they all look at me blankly and I was like of course she was in 96 like they were all probably born around <laughs> then so they had no idea who she was apart from Dancing with the Stars and then, but now she's back with a vengeance. Like she's come back first. She didn't like Aboriginal people, then she didn't like Asians, and now uh, she's got onto the Muslims and certain things. So it's sort of like it's it's right back. So I, for me, the 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 environment in Australia is worse now than it was just after nine eleven. And as far as my art practice goes, to look at it completely cynically, uh, the politics of Australia is a gift that keeps on giving. Like it's just, it's just, I've got plenty of material to respond to. That's another thing I want to ask you about, because um, you did a TED talk last year, yeah. which was great, and oh, I recommend you. to the listener to go to Abdul's website and, and go to that. And in that TEDx talk, you talk about how your oldest brother got the brains, your middle brother got the heart, and you got the courage. Do you still think that you need courage to do the sort of work you're doing? Uh, in a way, yes and no. Like, I don't feel particularly courageous when I make the work. Uh, but I, uh, that's a comment that people have made, um, that I'm sort of uh, putting myself in a situation where I'm vulnerable to some of the horrible ideologies that make things harder for people to live their lives in an easy fashion in Australia, particularly groups like the United Patriots Front and Reclaim Australia and these groups that are outwardly opposed to people like me and my existence or my, my residence even in this country. But it, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not something that washes off, so it's not something that I can sort of uh, I can take off that Muslim outfit or that, that identity leave it somewhere and just mm. go about my normal life without changing my name and changing the way that I look like it's it's so it's 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 just a lived experience really so there's mm. not much else I can really do about that mm. <laughs> and do you think your art will always be addressing that I suppose you can't see into the future but 
It was funny, I was just uh, down in Melbourne and I, I met up with a, an artist friend of mine, Ian Strange, he's a terrific artist, he's based in the States now, but he was he was having a joke with me, he was saying a couple of years ago, it's like, oh bro, you're doing wonderful, you're doing amazing, oh, he's doing, I love your work, you're doing great, but what happens when all this blows over? And then he came and he's like, oh well, it's gotten worse, so <laughs> I guess don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, God, sadly, sadly. But there's also the criticism that I've had um, from, I guess, some more cynical people that I studied with maybe that uh, that uh, if it wasn't for my particular cultural experience this is the reason why I've had the success that I've had but uh, my counter argument would be that I've been able to exhibit and show the work that I had and have these conversations in spite of that cultural identity like if I didn't have that I'd make work like everyone else so it's sort of like but this is a thing that uh, takes up my entire life so this mm. is what I'm making out of it. Do you, you were talking about those groups that you know, make your life difficult and people like you. Mm. Do you think those types of people are capable of having their perceptions changed through art? It's, it's an interesting question. And I've been asked before, like, who is my, who's my audience? Who's my audience? Who am I making my work for? And so, so often when you make, when you have a creative practice, particularly visual arts, you're making work that exists in a pretty sort of left-leaning, friendly bubble, like, and I, I, I acknowledge that. Um, but I I don't know if this work would change minds, or, but it, I, I hope that it strengthens arguments. So it may not be the thing that tips a person over, but it might contribute mm. to that conversation in a positive way. And I've seen it particularly with my photographs that have either rubbed people the wrong way or people have used it as an example of an alternative point of view. So it's it's... I think it's a positive contribution, but um, someone who's in the United Patriots, right? Like, I don't really know if there's anything that I can say that's going to change their mind, but mm. I might, you know, have something to say to someone who might sympathise with them. Well, you've actually got a lot of shows. How many did we count? Seven. I Seven think. shows sort of within the next few weeks. Yeah, four so, shows on at the moment and three more after that. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm going to put that on my website. I'm going to list them all on the website. So go to um, talkingwithpainters.com for all of those. Thank you so much. No worries, me. I it's, hope it's been okay. <laughs> it's been fantastic. I really enjoyed speaking to you today and um, also it's such a treat to be here in your studio because... Sorry about the planes. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> That's atmosphere. Okay. And uh, good luck. Thank you, Ray. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Abdul. You can go to talkingwithpainters.com for links to Abdul's website and people and things we talked about in the show. I've also listed his current and upcoming shows, so go there for, for a list of those. Don't forget you can follow Talking With Painters on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and I hope you can join me next time for the next episode of Talking With Painters.